If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com twelve twelve. This is the World According to Zig podcast for July 28, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find, one of many places, you can find the other podcast that I do, which is devoted specifically to the world of Donald Trump and our national politics. I urge you to check out the Individual One podcast, especially this week as I review Robert Mueller's testimony and what really happened, I believe, in the entire Russia investigation. Uh, But uh, for the world according to Zig, we tend to focus on things that are non-Trump related. And once again, we have an exclusive interview regarding the HBO movie, Leaving Neverland, about uh, Michael Jackson and allegations of child molestation against him, which has been in the news as it has been continually for the last several months this week because that movie was nominated for five Emmy Awards, a couple of them technical, a couple of them substantive. It should have been in the fictional category, but it was not. Uh, A lot of Michael Jackson fans have understandably been freaking out about that. I can understand it. It's not good, but it's potentially not bad either. If it doesn't win anything, which I'm hoping, I I always hold out hope, even though I'm a pessimist. (laughs) If it doesn't win anything, this actually could end up being a wash or maybe even good. Uh, Because anything that keeps it in the news is good for the opportunity to try to debunk it. Uh, at least as long as it doesn't get uh, too much credibility and victory. Let's be clear. The Emmys are way overrated to begin with. Uh, I mean, I, they're a joke. I mean, I, I, mean, I realize I it's not a national Emmy, but even I have an Emmy. It's a, a regional Emmy from the, the mid-Atlantic region back uh, in the early 2000s that I won uh, for hosting and producing a, a television news program out of Philadelphia. Uh, but having been through the process, you know, even on the regional level of being nominated and winning an Emmy, I have to say it's a joke. And the national Emmys, I'm sure, are no different or very little different. And uh, HBO sponsors the Emmys. It's really – it's not – none of these awards are legitimate anymore to begin with. But the Emmys, if you put a hierarchy of the awards, the Emmys are at the bottom of the barrel as far as uh, credibility is concerned. But I realize that perception uh, is reality. Um, But uh, I I wanted for quite some time to speak with uh, Aphrodite Jones, 
who uh, wrote a book about Michael Jackson's 2005 trial, and we've been finally able to coordinate that and schedule that. And so let's talk to her now. Joining us now is journalist and author, the uh, author of the book Michael Jackson Conspiracy, among others. She's also a host on Discovery ID channel, and her name is Aphrodite Jones. Miss Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I have been wanting to speak to you for a very long time uh, for a number of reasons. Tom Mesereau, our, our mutual uh, friend, I guess, uh, gave me your mm-hmm. book, Michael Jackson Conspiracy, several years ago uh, when we were discussing another matter that was somewhat related to this. And at the time, I didn't think a lot of it because I had been a radio talk show host in Los Angeles when the criminal trial, which is the focus of your book, took place. And at the beginning of that trial... You know, as a conservative talk show host, I presume almost everybody to be guilty, uh, especially celebrities. And that's where I was with Michael Jackson. At the end of it, uh, at the end of the trial, I was like, well, I don't know if he's guilty or not, but the verdict is correct because there was no evidence. And Mm -hmm. the the prosecution was basically a disaster. And now in light of leaving Neverland, which has a lot of connections to that 2005 uh, criminal trial where Michael Jackson was acquitted, I've revisited your book and have been very curious as to your thoughts on what has happened over the last couple of months with the HBO film. I don't, I don't call it a documentary, the film Leaving Neverland. So why don't we go back to the criminal trial? And my understanding from your book is that your experience was somewhat, at least somewhat similar to mine with regard to how you viewed that trial that you covered. Is that accurate? That's absolutely. I mean, I was covering... Um, prior to that, the Robert Blake trial and then the uh, Scott Peterson trial. Um, and so when I got into the Michael Jackson trial, very much like the others, I, you know, I presumed guilt, certainly for Scott Peterson, as well as Robert Blake, really. And when it was Michael Jackson, you know, I was one of the media flock in that, you know, all we'd heard about Michael Jackson was that, you know, his obsession with little boys, his obsession with children, his, you know, carnival-like property at Neverland and with the zoo and then, you know, the whole bit going on and uh, <laughs> choo-choo train and everything that would be luring a child into a pedophile's dream. And so for me, and especially with the settlement that happened with Jordy Chandler, in 1993, to me, it was a no-brainer, no frankly, that he was guilty. And I think everyone I was around in the media thought that as well, um, I, at least my closest people there. I had a lot of you know friends in the media. We worked together on all these other trials. And it was everyone's consensus that he was guilty. So everyone covering the trial was reporting only the, the matters that were showed culpability and never um, actually dwelled on anything that could have exonerated Michael Jackson. So, of course, they were already bending the news toward his guilt throughout the trial, including myself. And what shifted your perspective from one of presuming guilt to one of, hey, wait a minute, there's not much, if anything, here? Actually, John, to tell you the truth, I was I was actually blindsided by the jury's uh, acquittal. I really expected that they were going to come back with guilty on something. There were 14 counts against Jackson. And when it was this not guilty over and over again in the courtroom and, and the fans were quietly shedding tears and 
I suddenly realized that, you know, looking at the jury and studying their faces, that they actually got it right. And I remember going on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox that night, and uh, he said, well, you know, what do you think? Is he guilty or not? And I said, uh, he, he's not guilty. And he said, well, how, how did you change your mind, you know, since all the recording he's done? I said, you know, I, it was like the emperor had no clothes for me. It was like I all of a sudden realized, oh, my God, there was no evidence. He, he, there was no proof of anything that he was being charged with, not, not to mention the timeline that that didn't fit. Allegedly, this kid was allegedly molested by Michael Jackson after the Bashir documentary aired. So that would mean, John, as a, as you all know, having if you read my book, that that would mean that after the Bashir documentary aired and the whole world was calling Michael Jackson from 60 Minutes to Barbara Walters and back again, that while he was in the midst of that crisis, because that aired, you know, in England first and then here in the States, that he would now bring the family to Neverland to, to try to do damage control on the whole thing because the kid had cancer when he was around Jackson in the past and was in a wheelchair with no hair on his head. And it's then when the kid and his family claimed that Michael molested this Gavin Arvizo. Now, the, this is completely senseless mm-hmm. because... Again, he's in, he's in damage control. And let me say, we in the courtroom watched a video that the Arvizo family made, all the siblings and the mother, including the accuser, and that's what they were there back in Neverland to do, was to say, look, all Michael did was help us. All Michael did was the only one who cared about us. We saw it over and over again in the, in the trial, and everybody ignored us. Well, I... I, I... I understand exactly where you're coming from. I, I do wonder whether or not today, post Me Too, whether or not any uh, of those contradictions would matter because it seems like the rules have changed, unfortunately. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But my my view of, of the trial was that it wasn't just no evidence. It was that that family you're referring to was were exposed as a bunch of scam artists who were trying to, to bilk this whole thing out of money. Was that your assessment as well? Oh, oh, oh. No, no question. I mean... Once and that and that's what hit me once the, the not guilty verdicts came in. I started realizing, you know, especially when the jury held the press conference and you know the the we started to hear what they were thinking in the aftermath of the, the actual verdict. Those that family had scammed uh, George Lopez, Chris Tucker, Jay Leno. The list goes on to local celebrities in L.A. I'm sure you're familiar right. with those who worked at the comedy shop, the comedy clubs. These, this family was pushing for people to do blood drives, to do this. And meanwhile, they had insurance for Gavin mm. Visa. So literally, we saw in court a $26,000 check, which was given to them through a blood drive that then they used to buy a, a car, an SUV with. And they had the proof from it. I think it was Ford, whatever car right. it was. I mean, it went on and on to the point. Uh, this family had, the kids had stolen things from a J.C. Penney store in West Covina, I believe. And as they're on the way out, the security guards are catching the kids with clothes, whatever they stuffed into their, you know, jackets, however they were stealing these things. And this is the great part. The mother sued J.C. Penney's for being violated and molested by the guards, and this, this is unreal, 
claiming that the security guards twisted her nipples 44 <laughs> times on the parking lot ground outside of J.C. Penney's. Right, right. And, and, then, mean, and then she created some photographs, right? Or it seemed to appear as if it, she scammed some photographs. Is that accurate? She scammed for, she, the, the father was a wife beater, according mm. to the testimony at, at trial. Right. And, you know, this was reiterated over and over again. He he was he was not a good person, and that was why these people were such scam artists. Right. Okay. Um, so so in, in the in the minds of most rational people, the Arvizo allegation is basically discredited by lack of evidence and by an enormous amount of evidence regarding their the family's true motivations and, as you said, the timeline issues. But you already mentioned Jordy Chandler. Who did not mm-hmm. te- who did not testify at the 2005 trial? But for a lot of people, he is still, in, in a weird way, the most important accuser. He's the first, at least publicly known, and he got paid a lot of money. And, mm-hmm. I, and oh, I twenty million dollars, right? Yeah. And I felt, you know, like a lot of people, that to me is very difficult to get past. And because of them, it's funny how one thing leads to another and, and leads you down a path where you, you, you start to believe things that aren't true. Because of the money, when I heard with, with the story that has been repeated thousands and thousands of times in the media that he correctly described Michael Jackson's genitalia, I believed it. And then I just happened – I don't even know how this occurred, but you, you would think you know I would have done this a lot sooner or that this would be a larger part of the narrative – I actually saw what was in Jordy Chandler's description of Michael Jackson's genitalia. And first of all, it's very rudimentary. I've described the, the, uh, the, the drawing that was created based upon it as basically a cartoon mushroom. And, right. uh, and, uh, and we now know that it didn't even fit Michael Jackson with regard to circumcision because we have his autopsy report. So that incredibly important to most people, a lot of people's minds, that incredibly important quote-unquote fact is just mm-hmm. flat-out wrong. Flat-out lies. And not to mention that he, the accuser claims he was molested four or five times, and then in court it was three or four times. Which was it? You know, that's very problematic for any jury, to, to not to, for an accuser, to not know how many times he was molested. That's, that's really bizarre. But, but to name times rather than saying, I don't know how many times. It was a lot of times. No, he had specific times, a number that changed from pretrial to the actual trial. What about, though, the, the idea that Michael Jackson, why would you pay $20 million to somebody who you, you, were, you were wrongly accused of molesting? Why, how, do you, how do you wrap your mind around that? This is why I thought he was guilty, and this is why most of the media thought he was guilty going in. And a lot of people actually think that the Jordy Chandler um, verdict was a not, not verdict, but the Jordy Chandler settlement was a verdict. They always think, right. well, what was the second trial? I said there right. was no second trial. There was only one trial. Right. And um, you know they think that because so much money was awarded to Chandler, that they're not sure it was a settlement or it was a judgment. They don't. They don't know. Um, people just automatically think regardless that Jackson was guilty in the Jordy Chandler issue. That, that's what I'm getting at. In other words, right. they think that that was designated by a judge or a jury. It wasn't. And when you think about, I got very close with Frank DeLeo, who was Michael's manager for many, many years in the 80s through Thriller and his highlights of his career. 
um, Frank DeLeo, who's now passed away, told me in an, inter- in an interview for my show, True Crime with Aphrodite Jones on ID, right? And I'm giving the whole name because if people look it up and they look up just True Crime, they won't find it. <laughs> um, but seriously. So I understand. You can find that episode on, you know, YouTube or something, ID Go, that there you see Frank DeLeo explaining to me something very strange. And that was at the time that Michael was doing, you know, Thriller and the height of his career, he was uh, told by his managers that pay whatever it needs to pay. What is it to you, $20 million? And they're looking at him as going to make a business. He's selling more bigger than life and the most known artist in the world, the Aborigines know him in Australia. Um, so in their mind, his, his team was saying, it doesn't matter, just pay it. And Delio even said to me, it's like a quarter to you, Michael. It's like a quarter, which I was thinking, uh, $20 million is like a quarter? But right, right. Those, this is what he told me. So that put a different uh, spin on it for me. Yeah, there's some truth to that, Aphrodite, but I, it was, at the very least, a very, very poor decision, assuming that, uh, that the allegations were not true, which I don't believe they were, um, because well, – uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I want to hear what you're saying. Well, no, just because obviously something like that's going to eventually come out. And it starts to create a narrative. And once the narrative, and once the blood is in the water, people see money. Guess what's going to happen? More people are going to come out of the woodwork. And it's been well, happening ever since. Right, right. It, it, it was a very poor decision on his part. There's no question about it. I also have no question in my mind that his handlers, his managers, whoever was around, were interested in the money he could make. And they thought that by paying a settlement, it would all go away. They didn't understand that this would be reported by, you know, would, wouldn't it would be leaked and reported and hammered on forever. And that, you know, Michael Jackson did the Bashir documentary as a way also to do damage control from what happened in right. 1993. Right. It creates, so, it creates a domino effect. One thing leads to the, to the next, quite literally. And, mm-hmm. and, spe- oh, sure. and speaking of the domino effect, let's go back to the 2005 trial because one of the key witnesses there, the, the first major witness that Tom Mesra called, happened the to be witness. Wade Robson. And Wade Robson, uh, who was a major supporter of Michael Jackson, was unequivocal in denying anything ever happened to him uh, and in defending Michael Jackson. All of a sudden, uh, eight years later, he goes on the Today Show, and Mm -hmm. after Michael Jackson has died, he completely reverses himself and tells a horrific story of abuse. And I think, frankly... That's pre-Me Too, and I think a lot of the media didn't know what to do with that. I mean, it didn't make huge news. It was kind of like, hmm, that's odd. And then we go post-Me Too, and HBO and Dan Reed come out with Leaving Neverland, and now he's got a partner in James Safechuck, and somehow, because somebody is backing him up, even though they're both involved in the exact same lawsuit against Michael Jackson's estate, and because it's on HBO with uh, lots of schmaltzy music and drone shots, all of a sudden people give it instant, huge credibility. What was? Let's go back to 2005 real quick. What was your uh, assessment and memory of Wade Robson's testimony back then? Well, I saw the evidence. He utilized it for my book, and I still have um, copies of the letters that 
so many people wrote to, in Michael Jackson's Neverland book, guest book, and in there are letters from the Robson family, and particularly, um, you know, thanking Michael and telling him to stay strong, and, you know, because Michael had, at that time, I think, pain problems from the Pepsi commercial. And Michael Jackson's uh, estate put out a book. I don't know if it was prior to his death or after his death. I believe it was after. It's a $1,500 book. Right. And in it, guess who's one of the people praising Michael Jackson? It's Wade Robson saying he was my mentor. He meant everything to me. He did everything for me. Um, you know, without him, I wouldn't have had a career kind of thing. I mean, right. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I, it was actually more dramatic that. than that. He actually said he was one of the, the greatest things humanity has ever uh, created, like the greatest human yeah. of all time. <laughs> right, right. So how can somebody justify that kind of compliment with what he's accusing Michael Jackson of now, after, you know, almost 10 years after his death. Well, let's not forget, does, let's not forget, though, just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but not to, let's not forget, testifying under oath as an adult. I mean, it's, right. I mean, why is it, how is it, Aphrodite, that we've reached this point where somehow, somehow someone's testimony as an adult is meaningless? How did that right. happen? <laughs> I, it, and that's the thing. Um, we are in a strange time where people don't, you know, pay attention necessarily to the rule of law. They make their own decisions based on social media, whatever is out there. Um, you know, everything is is uh, any suspicious thing is automatically guilty. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm a victim of that as well. I think we all are. We jump to conclusions. We are quick to judge, and we don't know all the facts. I can't understand why um, people are just taking Wade Robson and Jimmy Safechuck at their word when Safechuck, you know, was in the in the in the shadows, never had anything to say, and Robson was such a, a an adamant supporter. The only reason I think people are doing that is because they want to believe this because it's confirming all of those naysayers who thought that Jackson got away with molestation Mm -hmm. in the 2005 trial Mm -hmm. because he was a star, because whatever it was, and that now their suspicions are confirmed by these two people coming out a decade later um, to say, uh, you know, this really did happen to me. What did you make of the movie? You know, I thought that it was... um, very, very clever in that, you know, it started with these young men talking about being age five, being, you know, Jackson fans and, and how, you know, there was one moment where one of them said, I think it was Robson, you know, he's the biggest star in the world. I dress like him. And he was paying attention to me. He, you know, I, this and that. And, and at one point he goes, and then he likes you. Like, how can you possibly not? want to do anything and everything for somebody who's the biggest star in the world that you idolize, and he likes you, so that you would let him do anything to you is the implication before they even start talking about specifics. Um, that was, to me, very um, telling in that when you, push, when you compare it to Gavin Arvizo, who also said that Michael Jackson liked him, loved him, he called him Daddy Michael and all of this, um, you know, 
And so it moves from that. He liked me. I liked him. He was the greatest thing in the world. He helped me, this and that, to now he's the, he's a monster. He molested me. I, I, you know, it's, it's very convenient for these people to have a new memory or a, uh, a rejuvenated memory or an alter memory when Michael Jackson is dead for a decade. Mm-hmm. Now, just to be clear, you don't believe Wade Robson or James Safechuck in this in the movie Leaving Neverland, do you? You know, it's funny. When I watch them speaking, I start believing them. So that there's a... Emotionally. You mean emotionally you believe them? Emotionally, okay. it's like they're reliving it. Right. And so it's compelling. It's very... Oh, I don't know what the word is. It, it feels alike. This really happened because you seem to see them reliving it at the moment. Yet we both know, being in the in the media business and and, and show business, that things can be scripted. Producers can make suggestions. Um, they do. This is how television is done. These is how films are done that are reality shows. Um, you know. Everything is a suggestion. Everything is a way to get people to uh, come forward with things. And certainly that had to happen in this documentary. There's no question that now, you know, many of the fans think that the whole thing they were saying was scripted. I don't think everything they were saying was scripted. Because again, in the beginning, they were fans and they loved him and he helped them and he did this for them and he bought homes for the family and whatever. But does that equate to? The particulars that they describe in being molested, especially going as far to saying that Jackson tried anal sex on Robson. I mean, then then you that's when I start getting off the boat. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, do you believe them or not? To be clear, I do not believe them, but I do. It's not. It's a fuzzy thing. When I when I watched it. I, I had to shut it off because it was making me feel sick to hear them say these things. And with the emotion that, that came across, it started to feel like it was real. And to me, the Michael Jackson I know, uh, I, I didn't believe it when I, you know, I, I saw the false accusers. I was there for that trial with other accusers who didn't seem real as well that testified. So to me... I felt like it was it was it was mocking Michael Jackson in a way, and I, I just I just didn't want to continue with it. So I can't answer you entirely because I thought that it was a performance that you know in the in the beginning seemed started to seem like oh this is a real story, and then as it moved along it started to feel like a, more of a performance. And when that happened, I, I just I just had to turn away from it. Have you followed the the factual inaccuracies that have been discovered in the film? No, because I said I turned it off, so ah, I don't even know. Ah, okay, you know, I, well, I, there, there, I unfortunately that's fine, and that's okay. and that doesn't surprise me because I mean I can understand your your emotional reaction to that, but the the reality is that there are many many things in the movie that forget about are contradicted by past actions and, and words. That are just flat out, mm-hmm. flat out inaccurate. Like, for instance, probably the, the easiest problem in the movie is that James Safechuck claims to very clearly and very definitively and very matter of factly claims to have been molested in the in the second floor of the train station uh, at the uh, Neverland Ranch. 
except there's mm-hmm. a problem, except there's a massive problem. And that is that by age and by testimony, he says that his molestation ended in 1992. Well, the train station wasn't built until late 1993, early 1994. And, mm-hmm. and, and right there, you're, 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 to me, you blow apart someone's entire credibility because when you watch the way that Save Chuck says it, then mm-hmm. uh, there, there's, it's absolutely a situation where he's making it up when you know that from a timeline standpoint it could not have happened that way. And then to me what further discredits the film is that Dan Reed's reaction at first, <laughs> I mean his reaction was in, uh, asinine because he blows up his entire narrative by saying, oh, no, uh, James just mistook uh, the date. Well, wait a minute. By the time 1994 comes around, James Savechuck is a six foot plus tall, 16 year old. And, right. and, and, and that blows apart the entire narrative of Michael Jackson moves on from a kid once he hits puberty and he moves on to the next kid, even though the kids he moved on to, uh, Brett Barnes and Macaulay Culkin, say nothing ever happened. So, so Dan. Well, I, and, yeah, go ahead. So, just to be clear, this one little thread. I think unraveled the entire narrative. And it's one of many, many examples of massive factual problems. I believe that the entire movie is emotional manipulation. That, and- right. Well, that's what I started to think. That's what I started to think. Uh, you know, that's at the point where I started to turn it off because remember my trial coverage and the book that I wrote is very, very specific. And some of those details, the fact that, not only did the timeline not make any sense that add up, but this family was saying they were trapped there, that there was conspiracy to hold them up Neverland, yet the mother was traveling back and forth to L.A. via uh, Michael's Bentley and driver and limousines. The mother was going out to the next town solving to have her, with her children, to have their dental work done on Michael's tab, to have, you know, full body waxing on Michael's tab. Uh, they were using him and claiming that they were being kidnapped at the same time. And right. the prosecutors actually went with that. They charged right. him with kidnapping. Well, he to see the kidnapping. Now, I mean, that's how far that Snedden would go to do whatever he could to destroy Michael Jackson. Right. He's the prosecutor so, in the 2005 case. Now, let's actually, let's, you, you know, your experience, Aphrodite, is, is a really good example for why leaving Neverland was allowed to happen in the first place. Because once the acquittal in 2005 occurs, if the media had done their job properly, it would have wiped out the perception of Michael Jackson as a pedophile. But because the media was so invested, both literally and emotionally, in his guilt, that narrative never took hold. And the perfect example of that is you write a book. Here you are, a major media personality. You're covering the trial. You write a book called, the, called Michael, Jackson, Michael Jackson Conspiracy. You make the clear case that the verdict was proper, and you can't even get a major publisher. Uh, right, right. I'm a New York Times bestseller, and, and my, publishers, my publishers and everyone else in the New York publishing world said, a pro-Jackson book will not sell. And so I had to decide that I would out myself as a media person who was biased and also just go ahead on my own and self-publish, which I've never done in my life before or since. You know, because I felt so strongly about the fact that we all got it wrong and 
once the Jackson trial verdict was over, what stunned me just as much as anything else was that the whole media circus picked up and left town that day. I was still there because I was there to thinking about a book one way or the other. And so I was still there and I remained there for another week or so. And, and, and it was a, it was a different town. There was nobody there. It was back to this small little town. All of the, the satellite trucks were gone. Everybody, anything pulled up within a day or two, it was gone. And nobody in the media ever retracted anything. Nobody in the media said, gee, you know, we realize why they got it wrong, uh, you know, or they got it right, rather. You know, we realize why they got it right. It turned out really the evidence that we were reporting was overshadowed by these people being uh, grifters by, by the fact that we learned that the, the, you know, there were lies and holes in the accuser's story, not only on the stand, but to the police. When, you know, none of that was ever reported by one outlet whatsoever. And that, to me, was, was even further injustice to Michael Jackson because they were his, Jackson was their money machine. Jackson was their, you know, their best cash cow in blowing up his career. I mean, that's all that mattered with headlines. And they wanted to continue to do that and had expected, John, had expected that if and when he was convicted and put behind bars, that now he, he would be a multi-million dollar cottage industry for the tabloids and the tabloid television shows. So to, to summarize, in my assessment, and I, I want to get your reaction to this, my assessment is that the news media, which is no longer really about journalism, looked at the, the entire Michael Jackson saga as nothing but a reality show. And when they, it, it appeared as if the narrative was going in a direction they didn't like, they just dropped it. And not because, and so, I, go ahead. I, I, I just dropped it. And, and here's the thing. When I wrote that book, John, I was outing the media. And it was done, I wrote that book in 2006. So we're talking about 13 years ago when I wrote it. And at the time, I thought I was writing the end of my career. And I remember going to Tom Mesereau and saying, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm paying to write this book. I have no backing. I don't know, you know, how I'm going to accomplish this. Thinking to myself, you're never going to have a job again. You're going to have to move to Costa Rica or something, for real. And, but I felt so strongly that, that the media just was biased and slanted and needed to be outed. And it's odd now to me that that's what ha- has happened with social media, outing uh, the media and them each outing each other. Um, that was not the case when I wrote the book. You know, has, um, has your position on this case and this book, Michael Jackson Conspiracy, has it harmed your career? No, no. In fact, if anything, uh, you know, I might have been one of the, the first people who had been with major news outlets to say this was a bunch of crap. I mean, I had been with Fox News at that time when, before Fox was, you know, so political. Um, they actually covered crime trials and... So, you know, I, you know, to me, I was outing Fox News, I was outing Bill O'Reilly, I was outing Geraldo, everybody who was, you know, so certain. And Geraldo sort of gave it a shot and was first, you know, kind of the only one who mm-hmm. had had um, a question in his mind about Jackson Field. But everybody else from CNN to Court TV and back again, they, Diane Diamond from Court TV was already writing her book during the trial. Right. She was ready to release it upon the upon the verdict, the guilty verdict. 
Well, well, let me ask you this, Aphrodite. I've been surprised I haven't seen you be uh, outspoken in the media post leaving Neverland. I'm assuming that most media outlets have no interest in having a pro Michael Jackson person. Or uh, uh, no, I, no, no, that's not what it is. I was asked to speak. They, they wanted comments from me for the Washington Post. There have been numerous filmmakers who have contacted me. One. A uh, particular television station, a large one from Berlin, I recently um, flew to L.A. to do an interview with. And, uh, apart, and you know, Taz Jackson, Michael's nephew, has contacted me to, to do some kind of documentary. I, I hesitate, and I didn't talk to the Washington Post, because I felt that anything I said would be misconstrued and taken out of context. And I didn't want to be, you know, I felt like I was walking a tightrope there. So I just, I just didn't react. Um, with the documentaries, I also don't know, especially with Bashir having turned completely on Jackson, you don't know what a, what a documentarian is going to do with your opinion. Right. Um, so it wasn't that we didn't want to hear projects and things. It was that I felt they wanted to use projects and things to feather their own, you know, nest, okay. their okay. own. Um, let yeah. me a couple of quick questions before we, we let you go, because I know your time is tight. Um, it's my assessment, having been involved in a lot of cases like this and seen the media coverage uh, up close and far too personal, that the news media is broken in general, but it is particularly broken in this area of sexual abuse. And that, that doesn't mean that they always get it wrong, but that we, mm-hmm. should, that, but, but we should, as a public be far, far more skeptical of anything the media reports, especially when it fits their agenda, whether that's political agenda or financial agenda or mm-hmm. sensationalistic mm-hmm. agenda. Do you agree with me that the media is not to be trusted in general in this area? I think everybody agrees with you at this point. I think that you know people have had their eyes opened wide at you know, for the most part now, and they question everything in the media, as you had said earlier. In particular, the Me Too movement, while many people, I was at the Bill Cosby trial, I saw it for myself, he was guilty, I believed he would be found guilty, and that there was no question in my mind there. Um, but many people that come out with allegations these days we don't have any way to substantiate it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a blatant, it's a blatant allegation that comes from out of nowhere regarding things that happened 20 and 40 years ago, whatever the case may be. Um, and you know, some of them are legitimate. Some of them are, are, you know, many of them are legitimate, but what about the ones that aren't? Who can defend themselves? Once you make an allegation of molestation, it's a stink that you can never take off yourself, even if. Right. And there's and your story, Aphrodite, to the way we're going back to your book proves I mean, you, you took a huge risk in doing this and you say it didn't harm you. And I think that's great. But the reality is very few media members are ever going to take the risk you did to stand up for what they think is right and what the truth is, because that's just not the way modern media members are built. They want to keep their jobs. They want to keep well, their. Of course. And it, in, in truth, it didn't hurt me in terms of being a news person anymore. Um, that I never was. They didn't call me in for a comment here and there on other matters, but my news career ended with that. And that's when, you know, I went to ID and had the idea of doing a show which would expose the both sides of any given case, uh, you know. And I'm still doing that, actually, on a new podcast called This Is Murder. Just give that a plug, if you don't mind. 
Um, I think you just uh, did. It's a new one. <laughs> this is murder. I'm doing it with Jesse Buttafuoco, as in Joey's daughter, okay. who also is revealing things that we didn't know about the truth of that story and, and what it's like to be a victim of that whole circumstance. So it's interesting to me that people are becoming victims right now, John, of sheer allegations and cannot defend themselves because the public immediately jumps to, they, they made the allegation, therefore the person is guilty. Last thing, uh, Aphrodite, what do you think is going to be the damage to Michael Jackson's legacy? This film has been now nominated for five Emmy Awards, which frankly mm-hmm. is, is a joke. Uh, MTV, there's a story out this weekend uh, saying that they're speculating that they may uh, take Michael Jackson's name off of one of their major awards. Uh, there, there have been all sorts of stories like that that have occurred. They don't seem to be stopping. I, I, you know, to me, it's at a, uh, a real tipping point as to whether or not Michael Jackson is going to be at least somewhat canceled moving forward. Where, what's your assessment of that? Well, let me say two things. One is that I, I have said this, and Michael Jackson fans have gotten enraged by it, but I will say it again. With things like Jordy Chandler or other accusers, not Wade Rosen and this one Jimmy Safechuck, but others who had taken the stand to say that there was a settlement, I, I cannot and will not say unequivocally that nothing happened because I'm not in Michael Jackson's bed. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I don't think anybody can say unequivocally sure. what did or did not happen there. And I want to be sure that people listening to this don't think that I'm some kind of nut that just all together wants to say nothing ever happened. The, the question I have is what we should be asking ourselves is just because there's allegations, does that mean that something happened? And I think that I'm coming to addressing your point, which is we, we don't know. In the case of Arvizo and the trial in Santa Maria, we did know because nothing made any sense, and it was so many lies and so many contradictions. Um, what's going to happen to his legacy? Unfortunately, because so many people already wanted to believe that he was uh, a criminal um, and a molester, this is substantiating it. Therefore, the Emmy nominations and the... Um, the idea that, you know, people don't want to listen to his music or that the BBC took his music off of their stations, things like this, to me, are very, very sad. When you look at one of the most talented entertainers of, of all time, and to say that now, you can't, first of all, you can't separate the talent from the allegations. I mean, how can you not, you know, how can you deny the genius of Michael Jackson? His music, his dance, his, his everything that he was about. I mean, that's what's beloved about Michael Jackson. And I think that that should never be tarnished by private allegations and, and his private life. I, I know that's what's happening now in the Me Too movement. But in the case of Michael Jackson, I just think, you know, none of these, he's no, no longer around to answer any of these allegations, right. to come back allegations. And when he was around, he won. He right. was acquitted. Well, let me, one last thing, though, I want, I want to point out, and I understand where you're coming from on the we don't know for sure what happened, and I don't know for sure what happened. It's theoretically possible that there could have been uh, some sort of molestation that occurred. But here's where I am on that. Given who Michael Jackson was, given the number of kids he was around, given the amount of money 
that is at stake, uh, both when he was alive and now theoretically uh, after he's dead. To me, Aphrodite, and I think you'll agree with this, if he really was a child molester, we would have many, many credible allegations. And instead, there's not one that passes what I would say the threshold of believability. And so, therefore, the absence of evidence to me is strong evidence that it makes no sense that he's a child molester because given who he was, it would be obvious if he was. You see what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. There should and would be a lot more people coming out of the woodwork, especially when there there was, you know, so much money being, you know, why wouldn't five more people join that lawsuit trying to get this, you know, bazillions of dollars out of the Jackson estate? You know, why wouldn't we have all of that, as you say, many more accusers and, and more accusers during his lifetime as well? That's very questionable. I agree with you. And, you know, also just seeing Michael in person myself, I remember the the magnetism of that man was so great that, I mean, I looked at him and thought, oh, my God, maybe she's going to want to marry me. I mean, I literally had that thought, like, wouldn't this be great? I can go home with Michael Jackson, even in the middle of the trial where he was supposedly, I'm thinking, still guilty. There's something about his magnetism, which translated to his talent, that was irrefutable. So these kids wanted to be around Michael Jackson. They were clinging to Michael Jackson. They were there. They were doing whatever they could to stay with him, be with him, look like him. You know, people forget that. Right. I, I hear you. Well, Aphrodite, I really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, and um, we hope that the people will take a second look at your book, Michael Jackson Conspiracy, and check you out uh, uh, on Discovery ID, right? That's the... Uh, yes, it's the ID channel. And again, my podcast, This Is Murder. Since you're a podcast and I'm a podcast, I need to tell people that, because at some point we will be talking about Michael Jackson, too, because remember, I was also at the Conrad Murray trial, and maybe you don't know that, but many of his fans believe Michael was murdered and that there was some kind of conspiracy behind that. Um, and it's something that I, I will be addressing on that podcast as an aside. No worries. Uh, thanks so much. Well, Aphrodite, please keep in touch and thanks for your time. I sure will. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Another story that I've been following in this realm of alleged sex abuse that I think that uh, Michael Jackson fans especially will be interested in hearing the real story of because there are some similarities with the Michael Jackson case, involves Al Franken, the former Democratic uh, senator from Minnesota, who was forced to resign in late 2017 because of a series of allegations against him that were basically, uh, they were various, he kissed me when I didn't want to be kissed, he he, uh, touched me on my butt while we were taking a picture together. Uh, But that all began with one major allegation by a woman by the name of Leanne Tweeden, who, uh, ironically enough, is a radio talk show host or news personality at KBC here in Los Angeles. And I, at the time when this occurred, I was one of the very few people to stand up and say, wait a minute, hold on, there's some significant problems with Leanne Tweeden's story. And we really shouldn't be rushing the judgment here. And at any of these stories that follow her should immediately be seen at least somewhat suspiciously because it's the old garbage in, garbage out theory. If the first story that's getting all the publicity is false, then the stories that follow it that are provoked by it are at least suspect, if not also false, especially if they don't have actual evidence behind them. 
And I wrote a series of columns for Mediate. I wrote a column for USA Today, which was, a, in my mind, a total disaster. The column is fine. You can find it online. But it was such a hassle. It really illustrated to me how the media is so unbelievably broken on this entire issue, especially post Me Too, of, of sex abuse allegations. Uh, because I was actually approached by USA Today. They approached me and said, hey, are, are any of these stories uh, reaching the level where you, know, you want to write about it? And I said, yes, Al Franken. Now, Al Franken, I'm a conservative. Al Franken's a liberal. This should have been easy. This should have been a slam dunk. Hey, conservative defends Al Franken, and here's all the substance as to why. Instead, it took for freaking ever, and the vetting was insane. It was off the charts. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was. It really was. You know, just it was just flat out ridiculous. And uh, and it, the thing got delayed. Uh, I think it was over Thanksgiving, and it was. It took for way longer to publish this damn thing than it should have. And by the time it was published, it was too late because the media narrative had been set and the momentum was there. And Franken acted like a total wuss and resigned. And there was the whole Roy Moore thing because who was running in Alabama as a Republican. And it was clear Democrats wanted to try to use the hypocrisy card on Republicans. And they basically sacrificed Al Franken on the altar. And uh, and and I was convinced and still I'm convinced that Al Franken did nothing close to what was perceived and certainly nothing in the realm of what should be forced resignation in the era of Donald freaking Trump. We got a president of the United States who, who brags on camera about uh, grabbing pussy and uh, and has been accused credibly of rape uh, numerous times. And that's nothing in comparison to what Franken was accused of. But I don't even think I don't even think Franken is guilty of, of what he was accused of. And it all goes back to Leanne Tweeden. So I was quite shocked uh, this week when, of all people, Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, who I've had some run ins with. In fact, if you're a big fan of the podcast, you might remember that during the whole Brett Kavanaugh situation, I read on the podcast a series of email that I exchanged with Jane Mayer, where I was going after her hard on what I perceived to be really awful media coverage of uh, Brett Kavanaugh and what I think was essentially an urban legend that she and Ronan Farrow latched onto from Brett Kavanaugh's days at Yale, where uh, you know I don't think it even happened. I don't think anything happened. I th- there was nothing in the factual evidence surrounding that case that that was contradictory to the idea that this was an overtime urban legend that had been created and had gotten hung on Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, so, and, and frankly, her it, it responses to me in the email exchange proved to me more than anything else that I was right and that her her reporting was not credible. And so she's someone with a lot of Me Too cachet. She's a liberal. I've actually had run-ins with her way, way, way before this because she went after a friend of mine, Cyrus Narasta, a, a, a filmmaker who created the movie The Path to 9-11, which I made a documentary about, the, the censoring of that by the Clintons. So I've had a long history with Jane Mayer. And so it was particularly bizarre when I woke up uh, earlier this week and I see that trending on Twitter is Jane Mayer and Al Franken because she has written an extremely long expose 
trying to exonerate Al Franken and to raise serious questions about Leanne Tweeden's story. Now, you want to look up conflict in the dictionary. That's the way I felt. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. Jane Mayer and the New Yorker are trying to exonerate Al Franken a year and a half too late. Uh, This is bizarro world. And the article itself was okay. I don't believe that Jane Mayer is a really good reporter at all, having read her stuff and, as I said, exchanged email with her. Uh, This story actually doesn't change my mind simply because she took a position that I favor because there's some problems with things that she left out. There's some problems with things that she put in there that – uh, that I know from, for instance, uh, I spoke to Doug McIntyre, who was Leanne Tweeden's co-host at KBC here in Los Angeles, who's kind of a friend of mine. He respects me quite a bit, and I- I've been in touch with him over the years. We've had our battles, but we have mutual respect. He's no longer in the business, largely because of Donald Trump, uh, who he does not like. And uh, he indicated to me that after having given Jane Mayer a very long interview, that there were several things in there that were not accurate about what she wrote. Now, McIntyre, I'll get to my conversation with him shortly, but McIntyre still believes Leanne Tweeden. At least he says he does. I'm not convinced that my conversation with him didn't have him a little concerned because there were some things that that he didn't know. And, and this is happens to me all the time, where people have come to their conclusions – I say, well, wait a minute, you're basing your conclusions on uh, on a fact record that is incomplete. Uh, and, and just to be clear, part of what is incomplete and Doug McIntyre did not know, which is incredible. I mean, it just shows you how bad the media coverage is. And, and, and these were two things that I had a very, very difficult time getting USA Today to even let me talk about because they're against the Me Too rules. One is that three years after the alleged episode with Leanne Tweeden and Al Franken in Iraq on a USO trip. Three years later, Leanne Tweeden got on a plane here in Los Angeles, presumably, flew across the country to Washington, D.C., to attend a USO event honoring Al Franken. That's right, Al Franken. You cannot be serious! Yes, she did that. Not only did she do that, she goes into the VIP room and is photographed, all dressed up to the nines, with Al Franken, and they're clearly joking around in very close proximity to each other. Now, does that 100% prove that nothing ever happened uh, that was untoward between the two of them, that there was no sort of sexual harassment, or that she had uh, no real animosity towards Al Franken? Well, I mean, in a rational world, it raises very serious questions. Why would you do that? This is not a situation where someone, you know, where she was working for Al Franken uh, or that somehow, you know, she was under his spell because they had dated and he was beating the crap out of her and there was this love-hate thing going on. No, no, no. Her allocation is that during a skit that he went too far and put his tongue down her throat and made her, you know, very uncomfortable and and then, of course, there's that photograph, which I'll get to momentarily, which I think has completely blown people's brains apart, and they don't look at this thing rationally. So so there's that. Then there's photographs of that, and I share them on Twitter all the time, and no one has an answer for them. And then she also tweeted 
Leanne Tweeden did, tweeted years later nostalgically about this event with Al Franken with a photo of her and Al smiling together on the stage of the USO event where this allegedly occurred. Now, that also makes no damn sense. And so right there, when you don't tell the story up front, and let's be clear, Leanne Tweeden had a perfect opportunity to tell this story back when it mattered because you know what happened right after the USO trip? I mean, right after the USO trip. Al Franken announced his candidacy to be a senator in Minnesota. Well, Leanne Tweeden is a conservative politically. So she's a political conservative. She's just been allegedly sexually harassed by Al Franken. She has a photograph that seems to indicate that that might have happened because there's a photograph of Al Franken hamming up for the camera with his hands hovering over her breast while she's wearing a military flak jacket. And she says nothing. Nothing. Why would you say nothing at that point? That's the speak now or forever hold your peace moment. So she says nothing when he runs for Senate. She goes to Washington, D.C. to honor him and be photographed with him three years later. And she tweets nostalgically about this event well after it with no negative comment whatsoever. All of that, to me, should discredit her story. None of that got put in the public realm, so much so that her own co-host at KBC, Doug McIntyre, in my hour-long conversation with him, didn't know this. And by the way, he didn't want to know it. He actually said to me, please don't send me the photographs. I don't want to deal with this. Well, that to me is what you say when you're worried you might not be right. And you're worried that there's more to the story than what you bought into. And by the way, Doug actually had to admit that he was wrong about that original photograph. See, that whole story is about that photograph of Al Franken stupidly pretending to fake grope uh, uh, Leanne Tweeden. That's what that whole story is about. And Doug mistakenly thought, and this is key, he mistakenly thought that Leanne Tweeden was the only person on the USO trip who got that photo. In other words, this photo was taken so that a, a, all, everyone on the trip, kind of like it was a college uh, reunion type of thing, where there's photos that are going to be passed around on a, on a DVD to everybody that went on the USO trip. And Doug McIntyre got in his head the idea that Tweeden was the only one that received the photo of Franken fake groping her. And that somehow this was an F.U. to Tweeden and that this was an indication that Franken had it out for Tweeden and that it was consistent with a guy who had been harassing her or somehow abused her on the trip. And I can somewhat understand that, especially post-Me Too, because you got to remember, we're now reevaluating all this post-Me Too in the middle of a hysteria, all right, because of the Harvey Weinstein situation. Well, I have always viewed that photograph very differently than everybody else did because my brain doesn't explode in emotion. Uh, I'm, for better or for worse, I'm Spock-like. And uh, when I looked at that photo, I go, all right, well, that was really dumb, by Al Franken, but let's evaluate what's really happening here. Al Franken is a comedian at the time. He's a jokester. That's his role on the whole trip is to keep everybody laughing, right? So Leanne Tweeden is at this moment in her career, she's a nude model. 
She's a nude model. That's why she's on the trip. She's on the trip to provide QTNA, not Q&A, TNA. Maybe she did Q&A, but she did. She's there for TNA. She fully acknowledges this. This is the, the old Bob Hope role where he would bring some TNA for the soldiers to enjoy. All right? She knows her role. Everybody knows her role. That does not mean. See, I got tortured on Twitter the other day for saying saying this. Does not, not mean she's asking to be sexually harassed or somehow she's not able to be sexually harassed or sexually abused. No. That's absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. That's not the point. The point is trying to evaluate Franken's mindset when he takes the photograph, which he's hamming for. He thinks it's funny to fake grope a nude model while she's wearing a military flak jacket. All right? If she was sitting there in a bikini and was asleep, he would never have done that because that would be creepy as hell. That would be scary. That would be faking an assault. But the point is, because she's wearing a military flak jacket, in his mind, that's funny and safe. And the photograph blows up everyone's mind, and they are now much more willing to accept anything that Tweeden or anyone else, any other woman, says about Al Franken. And the reality is there's no evidence here, for reasons I've already stated, Not to mention the allegations are as benign as you could possibly get and open to interpretation, especially post-Me Too. See, I believe Tweeden has reevaluated this whole situation post-Me Too. And it's possible she got manipulated by some right-wing media as well who wanted to go after Al Franken. Uh, Doug McIntyre, as I said, still believes in her. But he believes in her largely because, and this was the only piece of quote-unquote evidence he provided me that was even remotely in her favor. And that is that he said that the first time he ever heard about this was that she cringed on the air when Al Franken's name came up one time. Okay, that's interesting, <laughs> but that doesn't prove anything. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't remotely come close to proving, I mean, I, I cringe all the time for lots of people, and I've never been sexually abused in my life. It's also consistent with the idea because this cringing occurred in the midst of Me Too. And so literally Me Too is women saying, hey, I'm part of this. Me Too. And so she's reevaluating something that happened back in 2006 and saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds like what Al Franken did to me, forgetting all the context of the time, which at the time she didn't think anything bad occurred as proven by her trip to honor him at the USO event in Washington, D.C. and the nostalgic tweeting and not saying anything at all when he started to run for Senate. So so then, you know, the part about this that drives me bananas is that so Tweeden's story gets way too late, largely discredited by a Me Too crusader in uh, Jane Mayer, but then everyone says, well, what about all the other accusers? Well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. The other accusers, none of which had any proof of anything, and has it never occurred to anybody? This really drives me crazy. The, the supposed MO of Al Franken was that during these 
these uh, photo lines. You know, he's a celebrity. He's a senator. People stand in line to take photos with him or they just take photos if they happen to meet him. So the MO here is while taking photos, he grabs them by the butt or maybe uh, gets cops a feel on a breast or something that that's his MO, right? Has it never occurred to anybody awfully strange that here's an alleged crime that occurs while photos are being taken and there's no photographic evidence. How is that possible? How come nobody in the media has ever thought to ask this question? Why are there no photos? We're living in an era where everybody has a camera constantly. And by the way, when people are standing in line for, to get their photo, a lot of times their cameras are already on. They're already videotaping. This becomes a massive national story, and nobody has a shred of photographic evidence indicating that any of this occurred. That doesn't prove it didn't happen, but it should raise some pretty damn serious questions as to where the fuck's the evidence. It should be there in this case. And yet, nothing. Nothing. And, you know, I told Doug, and this was one area where he actually agreed with me, I said, this whole thing comes down to how Leanne Tweeden's story was originally perceived by the news media. And if a couple things had changed, I believe the whole Al Franken story changes. And that is this. When, the, when Leanne Tweeden tells her story, all she did was she wrote a blog post and put it on KABC's website, right? Now, to somebody who knows the story, you know what this is? This is a former nude model who's now just starting to work in radio putting her story unvetted on a crap radio station's website. Because KBC is one of the lowest rated stations in Los Angeles. It's not a credible news source. It has nothing to do with ABC. Nothing to do with ABC. It's not owned by ABC. ABC News does not run KBC News Department. So... In reality, it's a former nude model putting her story unvetted on a blog. That's what it is. But it got perceived as Leanne Tweeden, news anchor for KBC, has reported that this happened to her via Al Franken. And in the post-Me Too environment, that's all the news media needed. Copy and paste, copy and paste. Let's run with it especially the conservative media, because it fits their agenda, right? They want Al Franken out. And it actually fit the agenda of some Democratic uh, senators who wanted Al Franken out because he was a potential presidential candidate. So there's lots of powerful people that want Al Franken done, and he's a moron, and he's a liberal, and he's a wimp, and you know he didn't know how to fight back, and he ends up being uh, forced to resign, which he's now saying he regrets. And many Democratic senators in Jane Mayer's piece say they regret forcing his resignation. It was absurd. The whole thing was a witch hunt. And I'm more convinced of it today than ever, but I'm also more convinced by the reaction to Jane's mayor's piece that it's never going to be corrected. And this is the depressing part. And I think this goes to the Michael Jackson situation. Here you have a situation that should have reversed the narrative. Jane Mayer, is she one of the media elite club? Check. Is she a pro-Me Too crusader with lots of street cred on the issue? Check. Is the New Yorker uh, a big enough media outlet and accepted by the liberal establishment? Check. 
Was the story uh, extremely detailed and uh, incredible? Check. All of these things happened, and nothing good came up. Got attacked almost as much as Al Franken did for her reporting on this. Why? Because the news media has no investment in reversing that narrative. They are convinced. They are convinced that, one, it happened because they wanted it to happen. Two, they don't like admitting when they're wrong. They have no incentive to reverse themselves. And here's the, the, the biggest problem in the current media environment. It no longer matters what gets reported. It's what gets repeated. And things only get repeated if the media has an incentive to repeat them. And correcting themselves, on especially on a story like this, is in no one's incentive. It's far easier for them to go after Jane Mayer and destroy her or attempt to destroy her because it makes people feel badly about themselves and it hurts their own credibility. So the story goes nowhere. No one else is going to pick it up in all likelihood. And the truth is lost. And this is the problem with Michael Jackson now. I mean, barring a recantation by Wade Robinson or James Safechuck, or at least one of the moms, uh, which is highly unlikely, it's almost impossible to see how the narrative gets reversed, which is why I have suggested that the estate completely ignore the narrative and, and do something dramatic like create a Super Bowl commercial commemorating Michael Jackson's uh, halftime appearance at the Super Bowl back in 1993 or whatever it was. And, and just go above everyone's head because you can't fight this battle. There's no way to win. The media will not allow it. They have their narrative, and that's it. And Al Franken is you know, with a sacrificial lamb here. And I don't even like Al Franken. I disagree with him almost anything. But he was wronged. And this is a classic story of a rush to judgment based upon basically nothing other than one photograph that got misinterpreted. And blew up everyone's mind. And, of course, all this, for me, comes in the context of the Penn State Jerry Sandusky case. There was another development today, or this not today, this week, which did not surprise me. I predicted this. In fact, a few months ago when we interviewed Jerry Sandusky's attorney, Al Lindsay, he delusionally said that he thought that Sandusky had a chance to get a new trial at the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania. Well, this week, the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, surprise, surprise, rejected uh, his attempts to get a new trial, uh, which um, I actually think is good because, I mean, Jerry Sandusky is going to die any year now, uh, and he's never going to get any justice in state court, but he might in federal court. And, uh, and getting this out of the state system as soon as possible is potentially good for him. But in the bigger picture, to me, it just shows how delusional, naive, and borderline incompetent Al Lindsay, uh, Jerry Sandusky's attorney, is. Because the number one issue for appeal, and if you remember the interview that we did with him, you can find it at my website, framingpaterno.com, the number one issue for appeal, which at one point Lindsay told me he agreed with, but for some reason has never uh, fully pursued and did not have an answer for why uh, that's the case when I, when I addressed it with him in that interview, is that before Jerry Sandusky's trial, right after or just before Joe, Joe Paterno was fired, the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, voted 
as a member of the Penn State Board of Trustees and stated publicly that he urged others to do the same, to fire Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier, the president of the Penn State. That's the governor of the state, the ultimate state actor, taking an action which debilitated Jerry Sandusky's defense in numerous ways, taking away potentially exculpatory witnesses as well as making a fair trial impossible in that environment seven months after the firing of Joe Paterno and Graham Spanier. And then, of course, Joe Paterno dies two months later, and then there's no chance at a fair trial. That's the silver bullet. Frankly, I think that's an argument that Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which is full of liberals, would have liked because it would have made Tom Corbett look like an asshole. But Al Lindsay is not smart enough and way too arrogant to, to reverse course. And so I'm still convinced Jerry Sandusky is going to die an innocent man in prison. Uh, but uh, at least it's out of the Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court's hands and potentially now going into uh, federal court. Uh, I, I want to mention uh, one other thing um, in this realm, uh, and we're not going to be doing a, a podcast, a World Corning Zoo podcast next weekend, so I don't know for sure when I'm going to be able to cover this fully, but I want to give you a heads up that there, and I've mentioned this before, there's a movie coming out called Brian Banks. Uh, and I believe it's uh, August uh, 7th or 9th. Or, I know it's the 9th. That's when it, when it opens. Uh, Greg Kinnear is one of the stars. And uh, this is a story that I have investigated fully. At first, I bought in totally to the story of Brian Banks, a, a black uh, man in Southern California who you're going to be told uh, had his football career ended because of a false allegation of rape. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, fought it in court and ended up winning, and now he's made a great life for himself, and it's this great feel-good story. I bought into that for about 15 minutes until I started investigating it, and I've spoken to a lot of the key people involved in it, and uh, the story is bullshit. Every, every element of the story is reverse-engineered. It's bullshit. I don't know whether or not Brian Banks actually raped that girl, but I do know that that girl uh, told media outlets after she allegedly recanted that she had been paid by Brian Banks or promised to be paid by Brian Banks for that recantation and that the principal of the school where this happened, Long Beach uh, Poly, which is a football powerhouse here in Southern California, the uh, principal whom I spoke to said there was never any question that's to what uh, whether or not there was sex involved that the uh, Branks and this girl had sex on campus while during a summer session, which meant instant uh, being expelled from school, which meant he's off the football team, which means he's got no football scholarship at USC or anywhere else. It's over at that point. He acknowledged having sex. He was found having sex. Well, now his story is he never even had sex with the girl, regardless of whether it was consensual or not. And he pled guilty. And, of course, oh, he's a black male. He was forced to plead guilty. His lawyer was a black female who's now a judge, or at least last time I checked, is a judge here in Southern California. This is Long Beach. Long Beach is not uh, Mississippi in the 1960s. Long Beach is a place where just around the time where this happened, a, a group of black kids on Halloween beat the crap out of a group of white girls while screaming racial epithets and nothing happened to them. This is, this is not a situation where a black football star is going to get railroaded uh, over something that they didn't do, especially when they end up uh, pleading guilty to it. So the whole story is bullshit. Um, I'm going to see whether there's anything I can do on this. Not that I can change it. 
but it's it's just so classic. Where and here's a situation that me too ought to be infuriated by, but I'm sure they're going to embrace it because it's a movie and the guy's black and uh, the media's bought into it. Well, the media never does their work, and they get it almost they get it wrong almost every single time in this round, almost every single time. All right, uh, that'll do it for uh, this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. Uh, as I said, we probably will not be will not be doing one next weekend for sure. We'll do hopefully one in uh, two weeks' time. As is always the case, I ask only two things of you. Make sure you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. Number two, do yourself a favor. And when you sleep, uh, or if you sleep and you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.